This episode of Modern Madhood is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation's Well Endowed Podcast, whose last show focuses on International Women's Day, which just happened. So hope you're involved with that. And it's also a chat with some of the people surrounding Women Building Futures, a group that's helping women in the construction industry, and also the people behind a counseling program at the YWCA who are helping to empowering women. So to listen to the Well Endowed podcast and find out more about the amazing women in Edmonton, go to thewellendowedpodcast.com or just search it wherever you find cool podcasts. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Modern Manhood, presented by Next Gen Men. So this is an exploration of modern masculinity and the way it shapes us in the modern world. And as usual, I'm your host, Aaron Vigilius. So Modern Manhood is part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, and is supported and helped out by the wonderful people at Next Gen Men, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing healthy masculinity with youth programs, business work, and other awesome, amazing stuff. You definitely should check them out by going to nextgenmen.ca. Oh, and also, this show is supported by the APN and by the generous Patreons who donate as little as $2 a month to help this show keep the lights on. So I appreciate everyone who does that. And you can do the same by going to patreon.com slash modernmanpod. So when I started Modern Manhood almost two years ago, you know, podcasting about gender was mostly dominated by female-led feminist shows or shows dedicated to LGBTQ causes. Now, while these shows are important, and I want to make that clear, they're very important, um, to raise the voice of some of the more unheard uh, voices, and the podcasting medium is a perfect medium for independent voices to be heard. So, you know, these shows were great and are still great. But I couldn't find a whole lot of podcasts or specific any type of media talking about masculinity as a gender construct. You know, most of the shows that were about, you know, quote unquote guys were about self-help, business practices, or, you know, boys being boys type of podcast. Think Barstool Sports. You know, shows that were just encouraging more of the old traditional masculinity. But I could not find any ones that were critiquing, exploring, and investigating what masculinity is doing to our society. But that changed. And that changed a lot between uh, now and two years ago. And one of the shows that I really wanted to highlight because I love is Masculinity. And that's Masculinity spelled with M-A-S-K, like a mask. And they're led by Samantha and Ceci and Ramoy Phillips, the first. And I want to make that clear. <laughs> their show was a conversation about their lives and how masculinity was shaping it coming from the female side from Samantha and from the internal male side from Ramoy. Samantha and Ramoy, both from Brooklyn, New York, are in the middle of their second season and they started off with a bang. So they brought in scholar and savant Michael Kimmel from the Center of the Studies of Men and Masculinities from Stony Brook University. And you probably saw Michael Kimmel a lot if you've been paying attention to anything around masculinity because he's a very prominent voice. So... Obviously, I needed to chat with Samantha and Ramoy, and I had a chance to talk to both of them about the genesis of their show, the way masculinity is performed in their lives, and in the city that they live in, and the work of media around our specific premises of masculinity. We're taking some time. I know you guys are in a busy, busy time in, in your uh, in your recording and stuff, right? Trying to, yeah. <laughs> we just recorded earlier today, so mm -hmm. like an hour ago. So it's a little busy. It's moving. Nice, nice. May I, may I ask who, who you were talking to? Uh, we had a recording with uh, someone from Brooklyn Boyhood. She, uh, he was one of the original founders of this collective, basically, that's um, for like uh, uh, trans, queer uh, folks of color in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah, so we were just talking to him about what that process was like and just talking about masculinity within the queer community and all of that and, like, the issues, the togetherness, all of it. So it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a cool community. 
create for empowerment and inclusion for persons and individuals who probably haven't had a, had a space like that before. Yeah. Before. Yeah. That seems really, really cool. And I, um, I was, I'm very, I'm very curious into getting that conversation started with, with my show as well. I think that's definitely something that I feel like there's a lack in that type of uh, conversation, especially with the queer and trans group. Um, that there hasn't been or specifically around, um, you know, these type of social, social constructs. So, um, that's really cool that you guys are doing that. Thank you. I think for me, it was like, I've been frustrated with myself because I've made our podcast conversations, at least from my experience, all about my experience, which is cisgendered, heteronormative. Yeah. I'm a dude. So I'm going to talk about dude stuff and how dudes are assholes or dudes. I have problems. And, you know, <laughs> that's kind of been very faulty when it comes to really being a human and inclusive conversation. So it's been cool to open it up, especially in this way, in this format. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that because the, the last episode I just edited, I had to, I had to put a disclaimer about it too. Cause I was talking about relationships and I was talking about it in a very heteronormative way. And, and I, and I had to catch myself for that because I was like, you know, there's definitely different ideas that I'm not pursuing here. And I have to really step back and actually try to think about that specifically. Cause I, I know that there's people that are not being represented if I'm talking about it in a very heteronormative way. Um, for you guys though, like I, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I love, I love your show. I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's fantastic to have, uh, more media talking about, uh, masculinity in general. And I think it's a, it's a topic that, um, doesn't get discussed much or only if it is discussed, it's discussed in, in context of sexual assault or some other things. And, it, and I think there's definitely much more to that conversation that can be had besides just sexual assault and the, and the concepts of power. But I mean, it's just, it's just such a broad spectrum. And so when I started my podcast, for instance, um, I started looking to see what kind of podcasts are there around and like, <laughs> there's not a whole lot. So when I saw yours, I was, I was so relieved actually, because <laughs> I was like, I can't be the only person having this conversation. <laughs> I'm so glad that you guys are having it too. Yes. I mean, we're excited that you're out there having this conversation, no matter where it's coming from. You're, you're in Edmonton, right? I'm in Edmonton. Yeah. It's coming north of the border, the cooler neighbor up north. Uh, <laughs> and you know, having this conversation, even if it's just one other person having one that's just not damn surface level conversations, but really kind of going deep at it and being reflective upon yourself and around the communities around you and being honest. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So I guess my first question for you guys is, why? Why did you want to do this? Why did you want to start this podcast? What happened really was, uh, you remember the Brock Turner case, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that guy, um, I think I was really angry about the fact that he got six months and that, you know, eventually he was out of prison within a summer. Um, so, you know, I was really upset about that and I was, I was really angry because I felt like, there's got to be more value placed upon women's experiences around um, the things that people experience at the, like, like victimhood. But then, you know, eventually I started thinking like, you know, this isn't really an isolated incident. There's like a lot of, you know, we live in a culture that's, you know, the term rape culture exists now to kind of like put a name to just kind of like the things that we deal with. And so, yeah, totally. you know, I kind of started thinking about, what makes men think that it's okay to do things like this? So then uh, the notion of patriarchy essentially and like how that affects men such that they would display such behavior so pervasively and for such a long, for, for I mean, since the beginning of time really was kind of like the idea, the idea about it. And then kind of thinking about it, you know, it was more about accountability and then it became very apparent that actually patriarchy is not very helpful for men either. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this performance of masculinity yields to so much violence, uh, just like a lack of understanding and a lack of of uh, support for them also. And so, like, how can we kind of really take a look at that and see what there is to be discovered and also what we can do, like, now that we're, you know, when we become armed with knowledge, so. What made it the concept of having both of you um, speak about this in a, in a more, more conversational style, like, what... Rimoy, what, uh, what brought you along to the project? Growing up, I grew up in a single parent household, so I grew up with my mom, and that came 
that was kind of a byproduct of an abusive relationship or an abusive marriage, right? Mm. So I was a little bit more sensitive to these things and all the struggles my mom had to deal with. But then even at an early age in like high school, I remember good friends in my school or even just right after high school, female, cisgendered female friends coming to me and telling me like in confidence, like how they've been sexually abused, sexually assaulted, raped and so on and so forth. And it wasn't just, you know, this one friend, it was multiple friends. And as, I became more like privy to this kind of information. It became like eye opening. Holy sh! Yeah, this, this is really a, a pandemic. It, it became like an, an eye opening experience to me. But then also as I grew older and started getting into longer long term relationships and like dating and being in New York, mm-hmm. I realized I'm an asshole too. And there was I was very abusive to people emotionally, mentally. Mm-hmm. I had so much male privilege and had I was like, domineering, coming from that, standing on that pedestal of privilege, right? Yeah, totally. I had to look at myself in the reflection and being like, okay, this isn't just that, you know, we just don't need to talk about this in, in, in the, in the value set of sexual abuse or sexual violence. Like this is this patriarchy thing and this male privilege thing. These are all things that are intertwined and I'm benefiting from it and other people are abusing it and we need to have a real honest conversation. Yeah. It's that space of honesty and it's that space of conversing, talking about desire, talking about experiences, talking about abuse and how men or cisgender men have uh, been victims of abuse as well and how that affects the way that we live our adult lives. Having these conversations where we're listening to one another and talking to one another and learning from one another became an imperative. The first big point that I that I, that I wanted to talk about is uh, you guys living in, in Brooklyn. Um, it seemed like... <laughs> I'm from Edmonton. It's a small town. I'm a small city in Canada. So it's it, looking looking at New York to me is like this massive metropolitan area. It must be very diverse, be very um, culturally aware. Um, and I think there's some movements. Yeah, and that's that's why I'm like I'm assuming here. And I know Samantha, you're like making a face. You're like I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I think that, uh, I mean, one thing that's for sure is we can't ignore that we're living in a context where this conversation is very welcomed, you know? We've had a lot of people be connect, like, kind of being excited for the podcast because it was echoing their thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like we're, we're having this conversation in, like, in, a, in an adverse context. Uh, actually, I think the word is averse. Mm-hmm. Averse context. And so... So that, I mean, that's helpful, I think, in terms of, like, togetherness. I mean, and, like, community, I feel like Brooklyn is great because there's a lot of, like, work around gender being done here in New York in general, just, like, we're coastal, right? Right. And there's also still, this is still a conversation that needs to happen even here. So, you know. I think me and Samantha have talked about this, and maybe not the exact uh, intersection, but there's... You know, there's this idea of like woke feminism or like men being more empathetic and allyship and so forth to a certain degree, but some of that can still be surface level and that can be used as social capital. And it's cool to have these conversations at dinner parties and it's cool to like sound smart and uh, again, woke. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right people. But again, is it being honest with ourselves? Mm. Are we being honest with each other? Are we trying to make progress and be more understanding with one another and vulnerable for one another? And so, yes, like Samantha was saying, like, it's, this conversation is more receptive here, but there is a still a level of surface levelness that we're trying to even mine deeper and go under with and bring people along to help us engage it on a much deeper level. And in Brooklyn, New York, larger metropolitan areas, everywhere needs that. What are the challenges in your community then to, to try to make this conversation maybe more honest, more inclusive and more it's more out there, I guess. I think what what we're really trying to foster, at least, you know, in this context, and I mean, I think in all contexts, when we talk about like social justice and we talk about actually making a difference, is looking at ourselves in the mirror. You know, I think that like, especially with everything that's happening, you know, over here with, you know, Hillary and Trump and mm-hmm. everything being so oppositional, so binary, which is a perfect parallel to just the way that we deal with gender, the way we deal with race, the way we deal with class, like all of it is really like, it's easy to point the finger at the other side, but when we're really talking about like, who are we in social justice? Like it's really about looking in the mirror and seeing what it is that we're doing ourselves to move the conversation forward. And I think that to Ramoy's point about, you know, dinner party conversations and, oh, I voted for Obama and like, yeah, we should really do this. Like, 
you know, when you have like your, your five-year-old son who is doing X, Y, Z at a party, making people uncomfortable, like, are you checking him? If you're Mm -hmm. having a conversation with your, your brother or whatever, who is sexist, or if you're having a conversation with your, your daughter who is sexist, whatever, are you having those conversations like on a micro level so that it can ripple through the rest of society? And that's where, I mean, I feel like that's kind of what we're trying to do here. So. And I want to, that's a, that's an excellent, excellent point. And I'm, I'm happy that you're saying that because I feel the same. I feel the same way of, um, of that there is a lack of, uh, honesty. And I think specifically in media, um, and you know, I consider, you know, very independent, very, very small media, but it's still myself as media. So as media, do we feel like we have to have our responsi- our responsibility to have a, a specific type of conversation or what, I guess, what is our responsibility as, as podcasters specifically talking about gender? Um, do you feel that there's any responsibility that you guys have to be honest in your approach? Absolutely. I mean, any, whether it's, it's, it's the media, whether it's being a journalist, whether it's writing, whether it's just having personal conversation, interpersonal chatter, like for me, honesty has to be at the heart of it. And I have to be honest with myself. That's the only way that there's going to be any sort of buy-in from anybody else is to see that there's no bullshit and I'm not skirting anything. Like I can be honest and be, admit to my faults and my foibles and then engage with this subject matter from that honesty. Uh, and therefore create kind of a space of no judgment and right. space of n- not no criticism, right? And so with that, a lot of us, uh, whether it's on the left or the progressive or the fringes are very critical of the media, the mass media. And so it's almost because we don't see that honesty, whether it's playing towards mm-hmm. sponsors, whether it's playing to, for ad dollars, whether it's paying for conglomerates, um, there is a bias and an agenda, but there is no honesty or doesn't feel as honest as we'd all appreciate. And I think that's where we get to be lucky as in independent media is to come from a space of honesty. We don't, at least right now, we're not bridled by, you know, large dollar bills saying you have to talk about this. Or you have <laughs> yeah, to- totally. So Maybe it's a little bit lucky around that too. Maybe a little bit privileged around that part too as well. So yeah, we get to engage in a way that is honest. And even if we say something that we may change your mind about six months from now, at least we were being honest and then we can look back in that future time, look back on the past and assess with, with honest eyes our mistakes or our shortcomings and move forward. You know, when it comes to accountability, you know, we were talking about this earlier today. It's like, you know, if you're going to hold somebody accountable, you can't come from the space of like, well, you're doing wrong. And as, as like somebody who is superior or, or better or more experienced, I can tell you you're doing something wrong because X, Y, Z, it's really coming from the space of like, listen, we're all trying to figure it out. We're all trying to be in the space where we're all growing, right? I mean, I think all the time about how as a woman, I have to confront my own uh, complicity in this patriarchal system and how the only way that I have any chance at being able to combat that and be able to foster a conversation where things are better for future generations and for our generation right now is if I'm being honest about the ways that the things that I do don't, about the thing, how the things that I do sometimes don't work. So, you know, if accountability is the name of the game, compassion is the name of the game and and we have to be honest in order to do that. Otherwise we don't have a foot to stand on. I totally connect to this and I, 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 I'm so happy that you're, uh, you're engaging in this part of honesty and accountability. And, uh, I think personal accountability, personal accountability, I think is really important. And I, you know, Rimoy, I, I, I'm really happy that you said at the start of the, of the, of the show that you mentioned how, you know, there was definitely some things that I did as a man that, uh, was, was not cool. And, and that added to this part of, uh, of this traditional part of masculinity that wasn't good for, for women or for anybody else. I did that too when I was younger and I did, and I, and I know there's some times when I do it right now. Um, and I have to catch myself on it. And I really do. I have to really figure out how am I'm helping certain people and how am I helping the community at large? It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Sometimes how do you go around this kind of ambivalence? I don't know you guys and my, you and Michael Kimmel, talked about ambivalence and he talked specifically about like i don't know it was kind of like this being comfortable in this in this gray area not the black and white uh which was a fantastic interview by the way which i samantha made that happen 
I mean, you killed it during the episode, like, which we've talked about. So, yeah, great. Legitimately, like, my, I was listening to it on the kitchen and my fiance was listening to it and like, she was like, wow, oh my god, wow, wow. Like, I, everything she, he's saying was like a, a breathtaking moment for her and I, for me myself. So, by the way, congratulations on that. I think that was amazing. Um, but yeah, I'm very curious about your thoughts about ambivalence. Well, first off, uh, I just want to just say that most of how awesome that episode was, was because Dr. Kimmel is just like the, he's just a savant. He's a genius when it comes to all that stuff. And I'm just grateful that his work exists so that we have something to kind of like, we have, we have something backing us up. And so, you know, in terms of that ambivalence, that's really hard mm-hmm. because I'm somebody who is like, who deals very well with absolutes, you know, like, it's like, I don't like to have to choose anything. I don't like to be, I'm very indecisive. I'm Pisces, blah, 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 whatever. So, <laughs> you know, but, but really it's about conversation because it doesn't make any, it doesn't help us to point the finger, even though that's kind of a lot of times for myself also a go-to is like, okay, well, you're wrong. This is wrong. And I think, you know, in the context of this, like the Aziz Ansari kind of like explosion yeah. of, of, of a story was great because it, it kind of, it, it kind of brought everything back down to like a, a relatable level, you totally. know, we're talking totally. about like execs and stuff. And, um, yeah, I think that conversation is going to be the only way that we can deal with, with this gray area, really finding out where people are at, you know? I'm the opposite. I love ambivalence and I love paradoxes and I find that because it's, it's just, it's laughable for me because a lot of times we as humans and myself, very much included, uh, come to these assumptions that I know everything or we know everything. We have science to stand on. We have evidence to stand on. But then when experience hits, when human real experience hits, it can become very great. And that empirical evidence is somewhat out the window because it isn't so cut and dry and the only way, again, it, it kind of harkens back to the honesty. The only way we can ever have an honest conversation and move forward together, not in an oppositional format or an oppositional setting as binary as you versus me, uh, but as you and me together, is going to be embracing that ambiguity and embracing that humanity within that and trying to understand each other within that context that says this is not black and white. This experience is yours and my experience is mine. There's a gray area where we can meet in the middle. It's something that I personally am trying my best to be more ambivalent, be even more gray, and be a little more, um, I don't know, try to live in that kind of uncomfortable space <laughs> sometimes. It, and, it, and you're right, Samantha, it's super hard <laughs> to do. It's not my favorite, but you know. It is something that's um, important. And I feel, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out an assumption, and please feel free to correct me if my assumption is wrong. Um, Living in Canada, we see a lot of the news. I saw a lot of the media around the U.S. and and how what's going on in the U.S. It's sad because it is it's it's leaking a bit into Canada and it's leaking a bit into Canadian politics and it's leaking too big into Canadian conversation. I'm I'm I feel bad about it, but I feel it's like you know it's a it's a it's a cultural touchstone in in our lives right now. Uh, but it does feel. In the U.S., it's a little bit more divisive because we were adding things, not just around gender, but things around race and things around class. And uh, <laughs> how is it talking to people in the U.S. right now? Well, uh, I think that's for, I mean, I, I'll speak for myself. I think that's kind of where the bubble comes in. Like one thing that I, I really see is present for, for myself, like living in Brooklyn and being from France and California, it's like, Rarely, I mean, I never come across anybody who disagrees with the fact that the fact that Trump is president is a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I kind of wish that I did. And maybe it is, maybe what's happening is that I'm not finding out, like maybe I actually know a bunch of Trump supporters and I don't know. But I think like we, we are kind of in, I mean, I, I felt for myself like I'm mostly dealing with people who kind of are on the same, on the same side of the spectrum, quote right. unquote. So. I think a lot of the, the 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 stuff that I see that I don't agree with is actually through the news, which I think that's I think it's also on me to kind of like seek those places out, like those spaces out and see, you know, if we can foster some conversation. But um honestly, we we have a lot of really great conversation I feel around gender. We have a lot of really great conversation I feel around politics. Again, 
I mean, I am living in a liberal bubble, so I, I can't, I can't, I can't pretend that that's not true. I mean, I'm, I'm originally from Texas. I'm from small town Texas. So, you know, oh, I understand okay. small town Edmonton vibe to a certain degree. <laughs> Alberta is kind of like the Texas of Canada. So I understand that. <laughs> I mean, I do love Calgary. You got an entry in there, but anyways, that's another hey, listen, we also have an awesome mayor in Edmonton too. I was like, when you were, when you were talking to the next gen guy about, about Calgary, I was like, yeah, Nenshi's cool, but like, we have our own Meyer. He's, he's like 30. He's like my age. He's, he's very cool. He's very inclusive. He's friends with Nenshi. And I'm like, well, I got to give some shout outs to Donnie. He's, he's doing a good job too, but. Uh. <laughs> shout out to freaking very nice. Alberta. Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Texas and, you know, there can be, I don't talk to too many people from back in that area as much as I used to, but there can definitely be some pushback and, you know, I kind of fall prey to the divisiveness of this conversation to get on my defenses and try mm-hmm. to defend myself and my experiences. And, you know, it's not leading to any solutions. And coming back to our earlier recording with Ryan from Brooklyn Boyhood, it's, we had this like illumination on the fact that, yo, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't born woke. I wasn't born enlightened. Like I'm not, you know, the Buddha right here. Right. Um, but it's taken a lot of experiences and a lot of time and a lot of whether it's education or just the experiences around me that I was put in to learn from. And I can't have those same expectations. And there are a lot of people in this country, America, who are disenfranchised and to a certain degree can feel rightfully so. Um, and instead of preaching at them or shouting at them or getting defensive on social media, like I sometimes do, unfortunately, yeah, um, I, all of us, we all have to be better at listening and trying to understand, like, that was what was so great about having Michael Kimmel was like, he made the claim that some of those white men in middle America who feel disenfranchised, according to history and what they were taught that they were going to get, have the right to feel like disenfranchised mm. and their jobs that were theirs and the mm-hmm. positions that were theirs and the American dream that was theirs is no longer theirs. So imagine you are, the, the guys I talked to, they were, they believed themselves to be Fine people, good people, good men. They work every day. They pay their taxes. They, you know, and they, they, they made a bet. And the bet that they made was that they, just like their fathers and grandfathers, if they worked hard, saved their money, they could do two things. They could support a family by themselves. Their wives shouldn't have to work right, yeah. and they could buy their own house. Yeah. Sure. They've been standing in line waiting their turn. And now there's all these other people cutting in front of them, yeah. sure. right? There's slack people, gay people, immigrants, women, sure. all these people cutting in front. So they go to the government and they like tug on the sleeve and they say, hey, this isn't fair. There's all these people cutting in front of us. And the government says, you know, the hell with you. Yeah. You know, get used to it. Yeah. So that's why they feel so ripped off, by, stiffed by the government because they feel like they've been doing everything. We've done everything you told us. Yes. And now we're getting to the shaft. Yeah. Now, I think they're right. I think they are getting the shaft. I think that that white men in America, you know, have been screwed by this system. But do you seriously think it's LGBT people who outsource your job? Do you seriously think that it is people of color who gave you those predatory loans? Do you seriously think that it's feminist women who who, who organize climate change? <laughs> you know, of course not. Yeah. So my feeling is they're right to be angry, but they're delivering their mail to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. When he made that claim, it made sense. And it's about... And the way that this has been shifted into, uh, when it's been changed, um, shifted into political conversation versus being an issue of class and, um, access and so on and so forth, where it's open to everybody, it's become divisive and becoming a place to separate us all. From what we're saying, it just has to be come from a place for us, especially who have the tools and the access and the experience to be a lot more open to listening and having a conversation that leans more to us listening. And open to hearing the other sides. Are you? Was it hard to hear that from, from Dr. Kimmel? Was it, did it feel like you had, like when I, when I heard it, I, like I understood where he come, where, where you, what he was saying, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm like, oh, that was, that was, that was a hard thing for me to hear that, that, that white people or that cisgender white men are, feel victimized in some way or feel like they, they, they're also angry in a sense, but it, like I know it needs to be a little bit of empathy, but it, my first initial gut reaction was like defensiveness. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? For me, honestly, it wasn't because I have a lot of friends who are my age, who are still growing up in Texas, who are working class, blue collar families and have their wife and kids. And they, 
it's not they're not explicitly racist, they're not explicitly classist, but they're atone to some of the things they say because, again, they are living their lives and they don't have access to the things that they expected to have. And granted, that sounds ludicrous just thinking of it in that kind of um, uh, place outside of context. But within the context of knowing where they came from in their lives, like I can understand, I can be somewhat empathetic to them and that place of disenfranchisement. Well, I was, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think for me, it was actually kind of um, a relief that there is actually some reasons for feeling victimized because for a while I was like, I just don't see why mm. as the dominant group in society, you would ever feel like you've been victimized because we're all feeling the repercussions of you being held up as the dominant standard. So actually hearing like, you know, the like hearing the evidence, reading, you know, what's actually happened for me, g- gave me some backing and also kind of, help to shape the way that we want to kind of address season two of the podcast in terms of like the systemic, the systemic nature of it all and how, you know, we have, we we're all part of the same system and we're all being victimized the same way by the, the system and we are, we're being divided to be conquered. So. No, totally. That, that, that totally makes sense. And that's, that's great. I'm glad that you guys uh, feel that way. The Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV, is proud to be a sponsor of this year's Pod Summit, Western Canada's podcast conference. Join us on May 5th at CKUA in Edmonton for a day of learning and connection making, plus some amazing giveaways. So if you have a podcast, you'll probably learn how to make it sound pretty amazing, uh, you know, grow your audience and create a show your listeners will love. And if you don't have a podcast, well, you'll learn to start one. And we'll be happy to welcome you to the the amazing podcast community. Tickets are only $150 and they are limited, so don't delay. So get yours today at podsummit.com. Um, I'm also very happy that uh, the three of us specifically, um, we're all non-white. <laughs> like I'm, I'm Latino, like I, I... I'm, I'm a light skinned Latino, I would say, you know, but I'm still Latino at heart and like I'm an immigrant. Um, and it's really, it's fascinating to me to think about gender, specifically gender in a, in a North American traditional way and then to take it back to my Latino roots and think about it in, in a very South American way. Um, have you ever had these, these type of thoughts? And I'm very curious as to what your thoughts were after thinking about the um, gender specifically around masculinity and bringing it to other cultures or other races um, and how that looks like for them. I mean, I think, I think it's an important question. We haven't been upfront explicitly all the time when we were having our podcast conversations that this we're looking at it strictly, not strictly, but a majority of our conversations are around North American, American masculinity and, and, and all the subjects therein. Correct. But at times, because of who we are as persons and the backgrounds that we come from, we've also brought in our experiences and the cultural heritage that we bring in, and that's part of our critical lens. So I'm very critical when I said initially that my mother grew up in a, uh, was in an abusive marriage, and that was part of what my sensitivity came towards this subject matter. I think there's a there's a lot of extreme and toxic patriarchy and masculinity within South Asian households and communities. Not to say it's universal, but there's a lot of it. It needs to be addressed, and it's 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 there is a universality to the to the problems within masculinity. It is cool, like we just had on a documentary filmmaker, which will come on later in the year, talking about his experience in documenting uh, a, a culture in a conflict area in the developing world and his understanding of masculinity there. Uh, in contrast, his own explicit understanding of masculinity because he did grow up in the states, and so we're looking at it. Yes, through the lens of American masculinity, but then we also are becoming more and more aware of it as in a global scale and where the intersections parallel or where they are explicit intersections. My background is that my family is West African or Central African, I guess. My family's Cameroonian. And so for me, there's no way that I can separate it. You know, I mean, we're focusing for the, for the, for the sake of being somewhat concise. You know, we're focusing on American politics, on American masculinity, because we're both living here right now and something that we can speak to. And both of us were raised here for the most part. So, um, but like, I mean, yeah, like I think 
there's no way that I would be able to look at it from just an American lens because I'm far from being just American. So it's, you know, and I think a lot of our listeners can, can, can relate to that too, because, you know, we're American and we're, we're also a lot of other things, you know, in that pot. So, and I feel like that's kind of what America is. Um, and so when we're looking at American masculinity, we're, we're looking at, you know, like the, the, this, for me, that's not hom- homogeneous at all. To me personally, I, I feel like this is still a part of me and like, like I, I always mention the, the example of like, of masculinity being in, in North America that, um, you know, in the performance of masculinity that we don't really have to care about dancing, for, for example. Um, and that dancing in North America is seen kind of as a feminine, quote unquote, feminine thing. Uh, but in South America, you gotta learn how to dance. <laughs> and, and like, <laughs> like you, if you go to a club, you, you better be, you, you better know what you're doing out there. Um, or else it, you look bad as a man. And I think that's, uh, you know, like, um, Rimoy, I, I was actually, I was, uh, stalking your account a bit. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and noticed that you had some interviews with some, some really cool people. Uh, some South Asians and, uh, I was, I'm curious, have you ever asked them about their, their version of masculinity? No, I haven't. I haven't explicitly. I mean, it's, it's predominantly with the male individuals or cisgendered males inter- individuals that I interview. It isn't, ex- it isn't an explicit conversation or there aren't ex- explicit questions about masculinity, but I would like to believe that there is subtext and a lot of it is connected to my own male experience within a South Asian household in America mm-hmm. and similarly theirs. Um, should it be more prominent or prevalent? Absolutely. I'd hope to in the near future make that more of an explicit conversation. And I, to be honest, I think there's still really awesome interviews to, to even read. I was just, I was just reading them this morning and I was like, these are really cool. And these are people that are, uh, you know, like they have a, they have a, a unique set of, uh, of experiences, unique set of eyes. And, uh, um, I'm going to link them up on the, on our show notes as well, too, because I think they're, I think they paint a brush as to what you guys, who you guys are. And I think that's fantastic, by the way. I appreciate that. I was listening to an episode one time and you mentioned, uh, an anecdote where you were on a train or a bus. I'm not too sure. You were knitting. Is that correct? I am a knitter. You're a knitter. I was learning to knit last year and it's a, it's a tough thing to do. So <laughs> then props to you. And you mentioned this gentleman who, who talked to you and said, uh, you know, give you, give you some props to, to knitting and saying, you know what, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. And like, uh, and saying, you know, keep, keep at it kind of thing was really impressed that you were knitting. And I thought this was really, this is a really cool anecdote to kind of show like the power of what the social construct of masculinity really is. Yeah, I went into this situation where I was knitting on a bus and I saw uh, an older gentleman, like a construction guy, giving me a look. And I was like, oh, crap, uh, this is going to come at me hard and say some like really shitty thing about me and mock me. I'm going to walk away with my tail between my legs. And as I was getting up, he actually gave me a compliment saying I was really talented. And he always wanted to learn. And that's that's one of the coolest things about being in New York, not to say that's a New York specific experience. But like to having those moments of just being unexpectedly surprised by humanity versus the day-to-day constructs or performances that we expect to from one another. It was really cool. Um, and I'm curious for both of you. It was there. I think this was a very specific moment where you found, um, the power of the social construct of masculinity, um, and how it shapes, uh, young men and boys specifically. Um, and I know you mentioned the Brock Turner case was definitely another one. Um, was there other times where you really like, saw like this is the power of what masculinity can do to people well when i was researching for the show um i started off generally by doing you know interviews with people in my life Mm. and one of the things that came up consistently say for like maybe one or two people was how there was this like burden to always be like a protector or to always be um, the person who's supposed to be strong for either the women in their lives or their kids or whoever. Like there was this sense that like, you know, as a man, they were supposed to like shoulder a lot of things and there wasn't. And what I never heard was really that there was like a space for them to be vulnerable. 
I mean, I just felt like they were connected. I, I, I don't have like a specific example of like somebody that I was seeing or whatever. And like, you know, that showed up. Although I'm sure that if I searched my mind, that would be, that would be pretty. <laughs> yeah. I, I put it up on the spot. I put you guys on the spot. So <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if it's like, like one specific moment, but there's even when it's like having these podcasts with guests who are cisgender males, like to come on and have these conversations and, you know, they maybe like they may have like a again like a surface level understanding of what we're going to do or what we're going to talk about, and they may have even read our show notes or our outline going into it. But then once we're starting having the conversation, and they can be completely honest and upfront and open and explore this subject matter, not from a critical lens just about themselves or their experiences, but have allow themselves to be vulnerable and know that we're not going to judge them. Yeah, in a place of judgment or to criticize them, uh, and they can be contrary to the construct of masculinity that is where it's like tough and reserved and strong and keep your mouth shut don't show emotion i mean it's in those experiences primarily that have been contrary to what we think of when we think of masculinity that have been most exciting or the most humbling and the most like we're doing something positive and we're actually having this conversation <laughs> yeah no i i i totally connect to that too that happens I'm try, I try to get as money as the guys or the people that I interview is to have a little bit more vulnerability in what they're trying to say. And, and the thing that, that bugs me the most is when somebody comes with like a rehearsed answer. Sometimes I, I'm like, I want, I want you to be genuine here. I want you to be real with me. Like, like exactly like you said, I'm, I don't want to judge you. I don't want to, um, there's no judgment here because the, the more real somebody comes out, um, and like you mentioned, like they take off their mask, they take off their, and it shows like what their fears are of, of being someone like the protector, for example. Um, what happens if you lose your job or what happens if whatever that, that could really shape their identity. And I, what was that show where like the guy, it was like, it was a show where it was like, oh, it was that graph and he was like starting a podcast, I think. Yeah, yeah. And he like loses his job or something like that. And then. He has to like figure out how he's gonna like save his family. And I'm just, and it's like this woman who is his wife with like a kid who's probably like eight or eight or like nine years old. I think I have two kids. And I'm just like, but she probably would have a job in real life. Yeah. Or you know, like, it was just like, it was stuff like that where I was just like, why? And it's like, that's again, the media, which is like, why are you creating this narrative where? He lost his job and somehow she's just gonna like be like, no, 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 she's gonna continue to be a mother. She's not gonna do anything to step in and like. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd, right? It seems absurd, right? Like, especially nowadays when it's like, no, like, for, for the most part, like, both people will, will have jobs and for the most part, like, sometimes, uh, actually a lot of times, um, the woman will probably, make more money than the guy. <laughs> um, I know I was talking to a guest one time and he's like, my wife makes way more money than I do. And I had to really live with that. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I get it at the same time, but it's like, that's our life in 2018 right now. <laughs> I just want to put my hand up. I would be more than happy to find a woman who makes more than me and like support my <laughs> dreams in life and just stay home, cook, clean, wash dishes. I'm, I'm up for it guys. I'm just, I'm out there. Two more questions for you guys. And, uh, um, this is, this is really cool. Thanks for, thanks for, uh, giving me your time to do this. It's fantastic. What are some of your favorite moments in your podcast? I mean, having Dr. Carmel was pretty awesome, honestly. Um, I think, uh, the episode that we just released, I think it was yesterday about incarceration, um, I think is going to be the start of a really great conversation. Right. I personally am very invested in really creating more in-depth conversations about the prison industrial complex for our just like its impact on humanity and like, and just like really exploring how it just dehumanizes people inside and outside, um, of, of, of prisons and jails. Um, so that's a, that was a pretty awesome moment. And honestly, the, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that I get to do the show every episode. So yeah. yeah, I think a lot of, I mean, every episode is just so like befuddled with like, happiness because and joy and gratefulness because of the people who come on and share. But the fact that we're really tapping into a conversation that has been untapped and is really so prevalent and so undergirds our society as a whole. So when we're having a conversation with Yuval Moses, like one of our first episodes is about men being victims of violent crime. 
really getting to expose this conversation to the public and bring it to the forefront. Yo, men are victims of violent crime. For sure. They, For sure. A lot. To some degree, that can be get more violence. And if we're going to look at like being critical of violence between men, well, let's look at the violence that's happening at men. And let's start there having a conversation. Whether it's that, whether it's talking about with a pastor about Christianity and masculinity and the mm-hmm. good and the bad and the hope, or whether it's talking with, you know, good friend Chris Saunders about growing up in the South Bronx and not having access to education and, you know, the judgment that comes with him being a black male. And, but then seeing all these intersections within our culture as a whole and how masculinity, again, this construct undergirds a lot of it. Now we get the opportunity now to have that honest conversation to bring it to the surface and start deconstructing it. It's pretty rad. Totally. It is very, it is very rad. And it's, I, I'm so happy that you guys are doing it over there. Um, I'm so happy that you guys are, we're pod, podcast brothers and sisters. So it's nice. <laughs> um, so, uh, I'm my last question. And this is a question I ask all my guests that come on the show. Um, do you have a piece of advice? Or something that you wanted to give out uh, to the men that are listening to this show. Something that might help you guys out in your life or doing the show or whatever. Something that you have in your mind. You're like, I want to say this specifically to the guys that are listening to the show. What I would say is treat yourself and the people around you the way that you would treat your cousin's daughter. Hmm. And that's not my own thing. Like I ripped that from somebody else and kind of muddled it a little bit, but just have compassion for yourself, have compassion for the people around you and hold each other and people in your life accountable to having compassion for others. And I'm saying that to them as I say it to myself. Yeah, I would say, I mean, one of the hardest things about living in this world, whether it's now or maybe even like centuries past is that Feeling alone is a real, real big feeling. And alienation is a real scary place to be. And feeling completely alienated alone is hard. And within the confines of masculinity, it kind of exacerbates that. Because, again, you're, you, you're not allowed to be vulnerable or to be open or to communicate well, communicate the feelings of sadness, of loneliness, of being lost or not having it all together, right? Um, so with that in mind... The thing that I think is the best advice I could give anybody, and whether you're male or female with, within masculinity, feminine, wherever, the queer experience, like, is just to be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and I mean, I mean consciously honest with yourself. And to know that in this world of, was it 8.5 billion now? <laughs> yeah. Your, your experiences, your feelings, your thought, your sadness, you're not alone. Um, but you have to be honest with yourself first. And be vulnerable with yourself first to assess where you are, what you're feeling. And even if you don't know, to start there. So try to start to even tap into that. I don't know what I'm feeling, but I'm feeling something. And then come to the conclusion or learn through the Internet or through media, through whatever, that you're not alone. And the only way that we can start building this conversation is to be honest and then find these people and find these conversations that help us understand where we're at and help us feel not so alone. That's awesome. That was so, that was so profound. Both of your, both of your advices. And, uh, actually, yes. Can I change my answer? Please. If you want to go ahead. Uh, I mean, my advice to guys is to be kind of, you know, this along the same lines, just to be free, have the freedom Mm. to express who you really are. You know, I think, um, in, in the vein of the performance and masculinity is like, you don't, you don't have to perform. It's important for, for you to have a sense of self that's attributed to who you really are. And I feel like that's really the greatest contribution you can make to the world, to yourself, to the people around you. And, uh, to kind of piggyback off what Ramoy said, it does start with vulnerability. It starts with strength to be real about how you feel and who you are. And like, you know, gender roles have existed for as long as society has been around, but you can, you actually have agency in being able to create something new for yourself and your community. And I think it's important to, to like acknowledge that. And there's nothing wrong with just being free, you know, take the time to find out how people around you are doing. You know, like there was just another mass shooting yesterday or whatever. 
Like, take the time to find out how people around you are doing because it probably would make a difference to them. That's all. That's a great point. It's 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 interesting because in Canada we're having um we're having our kind of a, a, a very divisive, a very uh, important um uh, race uh, trial with Indigenous people, um mm. where, where a young man was murdered in Saskatchewan, um in a farm, and uh, he was and the the person who murdered him um was found not guilty by by a jury, um and so we're having kind of our uh, our Trayvon Martin moment here in, in Canada right now. And, uh, um, it's a, it's a very tough time for some people and it's a very, and it's, and it seems kind of hopeless. And like, and like you mentioned, like that mass shooting that happened yesterday, uh, was tough, man. It was kids. And like, like I work in a school and I'm like, that's my main job. And, and, and to, I kind of put myself in their shoes and, and in a teacher's shoes. And I'm like, this is, that's tough. It was tough to read. It was tough to hear. And it was tough for, um, for a lot of people. And I can't even imagine what, what parents and teachers are thinking right now. Cause that's, that's, that's tough. That's tough. Where can people find the masculinity podcast? Masculinity spelled with a K pod on Twitter, masculinity podcast on Facebook. Uh, you can listen on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud and on Libsyn. It's awesome. And, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for, for their episodes that are coming up. I, I'm, I'm very excited to hear, um, what's going on in the U.S. and specifically around masculinity. And, uh, these are very important and, and, uh, nuanced topics. And I think that, um, you guys are going to doing a great job about it. And, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Hey, we're thank a you. family here. So thank you for all your work too, brother. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So that's Modern Manhood for this week. Big thank you to Samantha and Sezi and uh, Rimoy Phillips the first for making some time in their busy schedule to talk to me. I thought it was an amazing conversation. And if you have any questions or some comments about this show, please hit me up on Twitter at Modern Man Pod or on Instagram at Modern Man Pod. You can also check our Facebook page if you look up Modern Manhood, the podcast. You can also do that by going to Next Gen Men. You can check out their programs at nextgenmen.ca. So I will also post the links for Masculinity Pod and for Ramoy's blog, which we talked about on the show. So give them a listen. They're well worth it. All episodes of Modern Manhood can be found at modernmanhood.org. And they're also broadcasting on gradio.ca. On the next Modern Manhood, we're going to talk about neuroscience and coaching and maybe some coffee. We'll see. Stay tuned for that, and we'll hope to see you next time on Modern Manhood, presented by Next Gen Men.